This episode is brought to you by the Grace Enough podcast, where host Amber Cullum and her guests delve into hard truths and the unwavering grace of God while journeying in the kingdom of God here on earth. Listen every week at graceenoughpodcast.com or on your favorite listening app. Welcome to The Table Podcast, where we discuss issues of God and culture. Brought to you by Dallas Theological Seminary. Welcome to The Table. We discuss issues of God and culture. I'm Daryl Bach, Executive Director for Cultural Engagement at the Hendricks Center at Dallas Theological Seminary. And my guest today is Dr. Woodrow Kroll, who has embarked on an ambitious uh, publication effort to discuss the events of the crucifixion. Um, the intent has six books to it, right? Six books in the series, is that right? Seven, seven books. Seven books. Oh, okay. Books. I'm missing one here in my list. Let's see. Yeah. You know, you're right. We added one on the end. <laughs> oh, you added one on the end? Okay, because yeah. the list I only have has six. But I was getting ready to ask you, why not seven? Seven's the normal biblical number. So, there you go. Yeah. So, so are you self-corrected. I mean, what a great, a great deal that is. Let me just yeah. let me just review the topics for people so they get a sense of the series as a whole, which Wiffenstock is going to publish. And we're actually going to talk about the events associated with the book as opposed to the books themselves per se, but Roman crucifixion and the death of Jesus, watching Jesus die, this is a look at the characters associated with the cross at Calvary, probing the trials, crucifixion, and burial of Jesus, although I'll I'll have fun when we get to the word trials in that book, and then uh, the day Jesus died, identifying the date, day, and time of Jesus' crucifixion, walking with Jesus from the upper room to Joseph's tomb, tracing Jesus' final hours, and what Jesus' crucifixion accomplished. That's book six, and since book seven isn't on my list, what's book seven about? Book seven is Take Up the Cross, uh, Why You Do It, and How You Do It. So okay, so it's the application it's, it's more, of uh, more practical theology than archaeology. Oh, very good. Okay, well, needless to say, this is a pretty extensive um, uh, survey of the topic. So my standard question to someone who's on the table for the first time is, what's a good guy like you doing in a gig like this? How did you get here? <laughs> well, uh, I spent 23 years at Back to the Bible as their president and senior Bible teacher, and I retired in 2013. And, you know, immediately when you retire, you have to find something else to do. And uh, I actually created a little project called the Helios Projects to help untrained pastors in economically challenged countries to have a Bible and Christian faith education right in their hands. When I finished that, I said, okay, Lord, uh, I still have time on my hands, and I've always been interested in crucifixion. I've been researching it for probably 40 years, and I sat down and I said, okay, what do I want people to know about the cross and about crucifixion? And basically, uh, the outline came out just like these six, now seven books. And uh, we, I started to write it and actually uh, tried to put it in one book, uh, two volumes of one book. And I have a friend who is a uh, representative for authors, and he said, nobody is going to buy an 1,850-page book. So we broke it down into these seven books and uh, made a series out. And Whip and Stock was very interested in doing a series, which made it perfect for me because I had a lot of material to cover in more than one book. Yeah, well, eighteen hundred pages is a lot. I've done, <clears throat> I did a commentary that was a little slightly larger than that. Some people will buy it, but it takes a lot to get them there. So you made a wise choice. That's right. Um, that's right. And you've already given a little bit of your background that you. Uh, that you were a president and senior Bible teacher at Back to the Bible, and of course you worked in the Department of Religious Studies at Liberty University. So you bring a background to this area, and then I also see that you have the traditional view of Christian retirement, which means we need to look it up in a dictionary. Because uh, <laughs> right. most Christians, when they retire, don't actually retire, they just shift emphasis. So, uh, uh, well, You know, when I did retire, I... Uh I, I traveled extensively for Back to the Bible. I've been to 113 countries preaching, and everywhere I went, I would meet a pastor who was doing the very best they could with what they had to work with. 
problem, of course, was they had nothing to work with. And I promised God, if I ever was in a position to help these pastors, I would give them what God's been so gracious in giving me. Hmm. And uh, I was retired probably four or five days when God reminded me of that promise. Uh And so I started the Helios Projects, and then from that, onto this Crucifixion Project. So are all these volumes completed now? What's their status? They all are all written. Uh, Book one is out. Book two is at the publisher right now. I'm editing book three at this point. And book four will come uh, in a month or two. After. Yeah, I owe you a forward for book four, which I haven't done yet. So I wanted to know what how pressing this was going to be. Uh, it appears this took you a while to uh, to do. How long did you actually work on this project of of doing these seven books? I it took nine years to write the seven books, and maybe. 35 years before that in research. I own just about every book ever in print on the subject of crucifixion. And, Mm. you know, some of them are extremely helpful, some of them not so much, but Mm -hmm. they're good books. Yeah. So, um, uh, so a generic question, and that is, um, when you look at the project as a whole, um, what did you, what do you feel like you gained from, from spending, investing nine years and working on this? Uh, for me personally, yes, I I think I I have a deeper, greater uh, appreciation of what Jesus had to go through, not only on the cross but in preparation for the cross. Uh, the series itself only goes from um, Joseph, uh, the upper room, to Joseph's tomb. So I don't deal with the Passion Week. I actually don't deal with Resurrection. It's all focused on that weekend and. What happened to Jesus on that weekend? Okay, so it so it starts with the upper room and then goes up through the crucifixion itself and the burial. Is that basically where the it burial. starts? Okay, right. <clears throat> okay, um, so let let's talk about this. Obviously, Roman crucifixion was was a significant deal. Not only not only because of what was involved in it, the actual uh, pain and punishment of crucifixion, but also because of the role that it had in Roman society and what they were trying to accomplish through it. So let's talk a little bit about that to start off with. Um, I'm familiar with a little book called Crucifixion by Martin Hengel, which um, goes through in great detail kind of the background of what was involved in crucifixion, how the Romans viewed it, the fact that Romans wouldn't allow a Roman citizen to go through it, etc. Best small book written on the subject. Yeah, it's it's a brilliant little book, and uh, I mean you can read it in an hour and a half, and it's just yeah. loaded with direct citations from all kinds of sources about what's going on with the crucifixion. Um, but let's talk about that a little bit. Why did Rome crucify people? What was their what was their intent in crucifying people? Well, I think there were several. Um, obviously, it was a form of punishment. Uh, that's that's a given. And it was punishment mainly for slaves, for the lower class people. Uh, Roman citizens could be crucified, but there had to be specific requirements before they were crucified. The other reason, though, that they wanted to crucify people was a deterrent crime. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you watched a person being crucified, you would think twice about uh, doing something that the Roman Empire didn't want you to do. Uh, so it was a deterrent. They would leave them on the cross sometimes for days until they finally expired. Uh, there's There are all kinds of uh, incidents of carrion and dogs and other animals coming and nibbling away at uh, the people who were on the cross. So it was punishment. It was a deterrent. They did it to shame the person, uh, to dishonor that person's name and perhaps that person's family. I think a lot of uh, Jesus' crucifixion had to do with shaming him because he'd become popular. Uh, the, the religious elite in Jerusalem uh, weren't his best friends. And as a result, they wanted not only to be rid of him, they wanted to shame him in the process. So they had a, a variety of uh, reasons why they might crucify a person. None of them justified, but all of them uh, made sense to the Romans. Yeah, what I what I say to my students is, is that the Romans believed, uh, you follow our law or we'll put you in order, and this is one of the ways that they did it. Uh, exactly. Was, was to... Uh, 
was to show that if you cross us, um, you will end up on a cross, and it will be very gruesome death. It was known as the most uh, horrific form of dying, I think, in the right. in the ancient world, uh, and uh, was intentionally um, designed to be very gruesome and very painful. Yeah, Cicero said it was the most pitiable of all deaths. Yeah, so... Um, so that's significant for the background. It's interesting, you know, one of the things that we have to think about when we think about this event is um, the Jewish role in leading up to crucifixion and then the Roman responsibility for crucifixion, uh, and that this was intentionally done. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to jump around in your series a little bit, because on sure. book three you talk about probing the trials, crucifixion, and burial of Jesus of Nazareth. And I like to say that the examination of the Jewish leadership before the examination for Pilate, technically speaking, isn't a trial. It's an examination to gather evidence to take to Pilate. And so it's exactly. it's more like our uh, like gathering a grand jury to seeing if you have a charge that you can take, as opposed to actually being a formal trial with a judge. Right. And I think uh, the role of Annas in this uh, especially shows that it was more of an inquiry. It was more of a pretrial. Um, when you get to the second part of the Caiaphas event, when they're actually at the chamber of Hewn Stone and they're they're formulating the charges, they're getting the uh, seventy together so they can actually take that uh, charge to Pilate. They know they can't crucify Jesus. The, the Romans won't let them crucify anyone. So they have to get all their ducks in a row to make a case to Pilate. I think they were hoping that when they got Jesus to Pilate, there would be no trial at all. Pilate would simply rubber stamp what uh, they had said about Jesus, and away he would go. Uh, they must have been surprised when Pilate said, well, let me take a look at this myself. And as a result of that, that's where the trial took place. In yeah, very, very, very good, and I think <clears throat> it shows the transition and the difference. Uh, there are some interesting features in that Jewish examination, and you said that there comes a point in the second half of that time where they're really focused on what they're going to bring to Jesus, uh, what they're going to, what charge they're going to bring to Pilate about Jesus. And it's interesting to me they kind of, at least with Mark as any clue, they kind of struggle to find exactly what they're going to do. They can't go to Pilate and say, uh, we believe Jesus is blaspheming our religion. Pilate's reaction yeah. to that would have been, so? <laughs> I mean, yeah, that's your business. Deal. That's your business. That's not yeah. mine. So they yeah. had to take the religious concerns that they had and translate into that into a political charge, which is what uh, the Synoptic Gospels make transparent, uh, particularly Luke, when he talks about the kinds of things that were brought before Pilate about Jesus. But what's interesting about that move is, and I, I like to point this out to people, the person whose testimony is responsible for Jesus' death is Jesus' testimony himself. Absolutely. He's that committed to going to the cross. Yep, yep, yep. Yeah, and he didn't uh, he didn't back off when he was a pilot. Uh, you know, he didn't answer a lot of the uh, Sanhedrin questions or Annas's questions, Caiaphas' uh, questions. I don't think he respected them as uh, legitimate authorities. They they were not doing the service to God that they were required to do or they were expected to do. When he gets to Pilate, though, uh, he knows this is the Roman government officially appointed legate for this region, the prefect for this region. And he is dealing with a, a, a organized government at this point. So when it was simply religious in nature for Annas and Caiaphas, now it is, as you say, political. It is now a, a charge against the government in which a government has some um, ability to actually make the charge and set the punishment for the charge and carry out the punishment. So let's talk about the difference, because I think this is important. Um, the, in the Jewish examination, uh, what the leadership asks about and focuses on is whether Jesus is the Christ. Now, this is a, both a religious charge, and then in this environment, it's also a political charge, uh, because the Christ is a king, and in the Roman view of things, Rome appoints the kings for the Roman Empire, 
Uh, you don't you don't get a self appointment if I can put it that way, and and so as a result, that's a challenge to Roman authority if Jesus is actually a Messiah that Rome didn't appoint. Uh, now, when they ask Jesus about this, Jesus gives them uh, the Jewish audience initially in the in the examination gives them more than they bargained for because uh, not only does he accept the the title of Christ. But he says, basically, that he's going to go to the right hand of God and ride the clouds, which is a nice way of saying that um, you may put me on trial here, you may crucify me, but God's going to vindicate me one day, and one day I won't be the defendant, I'll be your judge. Mm -hmm. And uh, and I think it's interesting that for Caiaphas especially, he can't go to Pilate saying that Jesus blasphemed God. Right. Pilate has done that himself. Pilate wouldn't care that Jesus blasphemed God. He can, however, go to the other religious Jews and make the case that Jesus blasphemed God because he did not deny that he would one day sit at the right hand of the Father and come on the clouds and judge them. And that put him in a position that no Jew would ever allow another Jew to be in, unless they were the Messiah. Yeah, it's it's a tr- it, it's a tricky question because um, in the in the um, some of the extra biblical material, you see contemplation of the possibility that someone might be at the right hand of God, but it's very clear dignitary figures, right. or it's in very symbolic contexts. For example, right. in the Exegoge of Ezekiel, uh, which is a, a Second Temple Jewish text. Um, Moses has a dream, and he's invited to sit on the thrones of God. Now, there's only one passage where thrones is plural in, in the Hebrew Scripture. That's in Daniel 7. And so he's invited to sit on the thrones of heaven. And in the midst of, of doing that, Jethro interprets the dream by basically saying, uh, when God gave you the authority over the plagues, when you were speaking, it was as good as God speaking. And this was a, a figurative way to present that kind of authority that Moses was yielding in the Exodus. Uh, most people see the Exegoge as a midrash on uh, Exodus mm-hmm. seven one, which is an interesting text because it says, um, as God is addressing Moses and his calling, I will make you God to Pharaoh. That's actually how the Hebrew text reads. It, translations wimp out, I will make you like God to Pharaoh. No, that's not the way the Hebrew reads. And so, um, so that's an important text. And then a second example um, is uh, Rabbi Akiba thought that uh, that David perhaps could sit at the right hand of God, but that got a re- retort from the sages. The sages are where the majority opinion is in Judaism, and it says, how long will you profane the Shekinah? So they didn't like that idea, but sure. Akiba in- entertained it for David. And then the third example is the Son of Man who sits with God in heaven in First Enoch, and uh, has all kinds of authority that he's exercising in relationship to the judgment. But again, all these were, how can I say this, parts of Jewish speculation at the time. They weren't, they weren't adopted doctrines, if you will. Um, mm-hmm. And this council is made up primarily of Sadducees, who did not like additions to the Hebrew Scripture. In fact, they were committed to the Torah above everything else. And so they never would have tolerated these kinds of options that some were entertaining in Judaism. So the point is, when Jesus replies saying, yes, I'm the Christ, and here's another thing you didn't count on, uh, you know, God's going to vindicate me, and then one day I'm going to come back as your judge. For them, because they didn't believe that, they thought that was blasphemy. And technically speaking, if Jesus wasn't who he claimed to be, they would Mm -hmm. be right. Would be yes, certainly. And, and so, um, so that's the religious charge. And of course, in Mark, he, uh, Caiaphas rips his clothes to show that blasphemy's been uttered, and they render a judgment. And then they translate that charge when they go to Pilate and say, "Jesus has claimed to be a king of the Jews, um, and your job is to look after Caesar's interests." And to make sure that Caesar isn't dishonored and Rome appoints the kings in the Roman Empire, you don't self-proclaim yourself to be a king. You've got to do something about this. <laughs> yeah, and when, when Jesus um, admits who he is, when he says, I am going to be seated next to the Father on his right hand, I will be coming on the clouds, immediately Caiaphas says, well, 
you've heard the blasphemy. What other charges do we need? Exactly. We have all the evidence we need with that one charge. Exactly. And this makes the point I was making originally, which is the, the testimony that actually sent Jesus to the cross uh, from that started the process was that remark that Jesus makes because Correct. they had failed previously to say, well, Jesus said he was going to destroy the temple in three days and, and raise up. He's going to act against the temple. And they tried to do it that way as a kind of disturbing the peace charge. And, and that didn't work. And so, so Jesus ends up supplying, I mean, this is ironic. Jesus supplies the testimony that ultimately sends him to the cross. I think that's one of the most profound parts of the passion narrative because it shows how committed Jesus was to doing the work that God had called him to do uh, in, in dying for sin. And at some point, the silent lamb led to the slaughter makes the admission that uh, silent lambs don't make, and that is that I am who you have claimed I am, and I can't go back on that. Yep, yep, fair enough. So, so this charge gets put into the political realm, and Pilate... Um, upon examination, his initial reaction is, well, I don't see him doing anything worthy of death. I like to have, think about this from Pilate's perspective. He's a prefect of the powerful Roman Empire. He's got Jesus in front of him who's been presented as a king, but Jesus doesn't have an army around him or anything that indicates any kind of power, any kind of threat to Rome. I think he initially looked at this and said, well, this is a Jewish dispute. I'm not quite sure what's going on here, and I certainly don't feel threatened by any of this. This is a Galilean Jewish teacher-preacher, and uh, I, I don't feel any – and his initial response is, what's the big deal? Yeah. Um, he wanted to dismiss it. Yeah, he yeah. wanted to dismiss it, and then, of course, they kept pressing him and basically said, if you – if you don't show yourself to be defending Caesar's interests, which is why you're here and is a part of your job description, like the central part of your job description, <laughs> then uh, then you're not doing your job. Yeah, yeah, and it wasn't until that uh, that charge that he would no longer be a friend of the emperor that Pilate said, "Okay, I have to do something about this. I I can't dismiss this anymore. I can't just shove it aside." Uh, if they're going to claim to the emperor that I'm not his friend, I'm going to lose everything, lose his position, probably lose his life. He had to do something. Yeah, exactly. And so, and then, of course, he issues the opportunity for another out with Barabbas, right? On the on the premise on the premise that, well, this is such a notorious um, insurrectionist. And then this teacher over here, surely, surely that will get us out of the situation. And that didn't yeah. work. And so eventually yeah. he's, he signed on. You made one other point that's important here, and that is that uh, only Rome crucifies. Um, mm -hmm. d the Jewish leadership had no ability to deliver the kind of sentence for the way they saw Jesus that they wanted. And there's another thing going on here that's important, which is why this discussion of the Jewish background versus the Roman background is important. I, I like to say to my students that this is actually a brilliant plan in some ways that the Jewish leadership has put together. Because in the midst of trying to get Jesus to Rome, if Rome crucifies Jesus, in the end they can say, look, all we did was bring him before the official Roman leadership, and they did the deed. Um, mm -hmm. We were just being good Roman citizens uh, in bringing Jesus to, to Pilate's attention. And so there's protection there. But there's also risk, because had they brought Jesus before Pilate without a solid charge to get him to, um, to uh, give a verdict, mm -hmm. that, would have been that would have been a bad result for the Jewish leadership. Sure, sure, sure. And, and there are times it looks like Caiaphas is playing Pilate, and Pilate is playing Caiaphas. They're really uh, two pretty sly characters here, uh, equally matched, I would think. And one of them is playing the Rome card to the Roman, and the other one is playing the spiritual blasphemy card to the Jews. Yeah, yeah. It's an, it is a very, very interesting exchange. And then, of course, it's clear that Caiaphas and Pilate had an existing relationship because every year that Pilate appoints the high priest, he appoints Caiaphas as the high priest. 
So they have. So I another thing I like to say is so Pilate had a choice. He could he could go with his instincts that something wasn't right here, and that Jesus didn't deserve what was being asked for uh, from him uh, to crucify Jesus. Or he could go with the with the gal he brought to the party, you know. Uh, the the they had had this relationship. The, he was his expert in Jewish affairs, if you want to think about it that way. And so he eventually followed the lead of the pressure he was getting from a relationship that he had that existed, as opposed to this new one that was cast in front of him when Jesus shows up in front of him. Yeah, yeah. These were two, uh, I think, equally matched politicians. Uh, They wouldn't have hung in there as long as each of them did if they hadn't been. This episode is brought to you by the Grace Enough podcast. I am its host, Amber Cullum. Each week, I sit down with a guest to discuss hard truths and the unwavering grace of God they've experienced while journeying in God's kingdom here on earth. You'll hear from guests like Jen Wilkin, Jamie Ivey, Andy Crouch, and Scott McKnight. Listen to these conversations and more by searching Grace Enough Podcast on your favorite listening app or by visiting graceenoughpodcast.com. So um, so let me go back to, to the contents of book two where you talk about a cast of characters at Calvary's Cross. I really like this part of the of the passion narrative because I think it shows what I call the array of responses that the crucifixion generates. Mm-hmm. Um, it literally is a little uh, microcosm of the array of responses that Jesus generates, and and it's all revolving around how people are reacting to his death. So yeah. so help me with that a little bit. Who who are some of the key characters, and what do they represent? Yeah, uh, anybody who is touched by the Savior at this uh, weekend event uh, is in book two. And I think there are 27 chapters, something like that, because uh, you start with Jesus. No one would be in this book if it weren't for the Lord. So Mm -hmm. everyone touches him and he touches them. The the disciples are obviously there. there. Peter is there. Uh, Simon Cyrene is there. The uh, daughters of Jerusalem are there. The ladies who came with Jesus from Galilee down and ministered to him, they're all there. And, of course, Annas is there, and Caiaphas is there, and, uh, you know, just everybody. The Roman soldiers, the the uh, killing field soldiers, those who were uh, adept at taking people's lives by crucifixion, who did the actual crucifixion, they were there. And of course, uh, the last chapter is Satan, because I think Satan had a pretty strong vested interest in what happened at Calvary. Fair enough. And and they all represent a little bit of a different uh, feel. For example, the women that you mentioned at the beginning who are in Luke, where Jesus says, you know, if they do this um, if they do this to the green wood, what will they do to the dead wood? Um, right. Which raises a question of there's a sense in which they're observing and there's a bit of sympathy and empathy for what's happening, but there's there's it's unclear. Um, well, what's clear is the injustice of what's taking place. In Luke, Jesus' death is portrayed as an injustice, that Jesus uh, wasn't guilty of the things he was crucified for. So there's that dimension of the equation. Then you've got the mockers. You know, the people who mock Jesus. You have the debate between the thief on the cross who responds to Jesus and the one who doesn't. Um, I even like to talk about the creation as a character in the story because the creation reacts to the death of Jesus. And so, so, I mean, you've really got – it's it's like this array of response. You've got people who are just sitting and watching. They don't have any commitments. They're just observing what's going on. Uh, you've got the centurion who sees everything that happens, certainly the, the climactic figure in some ways of the crucifixion, and says, surely this one was dikaios, was, was righteous, um, right. emphasizing. So you really get the array of responses uh, to the crucifixion that really cover almost the entire spectrum of how someone might react to Jesus and his death. Yeah, and, and not only their responses, but the backgrounds each of these people bring. They are so, so different. You have the religious leaders of the day in 
Then you have the Roman leader of the day in Jerusalem or in Caesarea. And uh, you have people from all over who are all touched by the same person and touched in different ways because his, his ministry to each of these people was a bit different. When you get to that soldier, that centurion, who makes the comment about the righteous man, I think you have hit the zenith there, even though there's a a burial uh, after that. I think you've hit the zenith there of the story, Mm -hmm. because here is a man who all his life was taught to follow the pagan gods of Rome, many of them, Uh, follow the emperor. He was a god himself. Suddenly... He sees all these things happening. He hears what Jesus has to say. And here's a man whose life is changed, flipped upside down immediately. He recognized something in Jesus he never saw before. And a lot of the other people around, the mockers, and at least one of the uh, bandits on the other side, they don't even see this in Jesus. But this man does. He knows this is someone special. And I have to pay attention to this person. Yeah, and of course the term dikaios is interesting because it's a double entendre in and of itself. Uh, it means it means righteous on the one hand, or or just. So that it, so here's a guy up on a cross being crucified for a crime who is who is just. You know, uh, put that together. Um, yeah, exactly. and, and so. Uh, so you've got this this confession that comes from this figure who's watched everything, including I think the reaction of the creation might have gotten his attention, uh, and uh, and so uh, responds accordingly. But I do think it's interesting how this scene is. Lo- you know, we're used to talking about it just simply from asking the question. So what is Jesus doing up on the cross? And of course, the Christian answer is he's dying for sin. But I actually think one of the fascinating parts of this scene is the array of reactions that Jesus generates, because it's no different than the array of reactions Jesus generates in general. Sure, sure, sure. He has brought to the foot of the cross just about every spectrum of society that you can think of. He's brought to the foot of the cross rich and poor. He's brought to the foot of the cross male and female, you know, bond and free, as Paul says. And he is the link to all these people, and the cross is where the connection is made to all these people. Okay, now, in some ways, the most interesting volume, I think, in uh, at least the most controverted volume, maybe that's the way to say it, is Book 4, which is The Day Jesus Died. Uh, you and I have had email exchanges about this, sure. uh, about this book. Uh, and identifying the day, the date, the day, and the time. And of course, the problem that we have is that um, we're 2,000 plus years removed from this. We're dealing with witnesses. We're dealing with uh, a section of timing that, generally speaking, um, ancient world wasn't as precise about time as as modern. Right. You know, I mean, I've got an eye watch here that keeps sure. nuclear time. Uh, you know, they weren't dealing with that. A sundial is a little bit of away from that, and uh, uh, that kind of thing. So it raises all kinds of questions. So I think what I want to do with this book is to just lay out the options a little bit and help people see kind of what gets discussed, and then try and pull it together because despite the the conversations that this these topics generate, there is something that's central that shouldn't be missed. So so let's do that. First of all, so what year are we talking about? Well, uh, if you're talking about the crucifixion itself, it, it all comes down to two options, I think, and that's uh, AD 30 or AD 33. Boy, there are just really good scholars that come down on both sides of That's this. Right. The arguments on both sides are really good arguments. And, uh, you know, if I if I say I think it's AD 33 and you say 30, God bless you. <laughs> it's it's, <laughs> Fair it's really a tough issue. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, I, actually, I, I actually don't remember how, how you decided this. What did, did you lean one way or the other? I did lean to 33, although I didn't say, thus saith the Lord. Okay, that's good. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm a 33 guy, too. I actually think um, that one of the reasons that I think 33 makes sense is the text says that that uh, that um, Pilate and Herod got along better after this, 
And there's a right. figure unnamed in the background, Sejanus, who was kind of That's right. the Secretary of State for Rome during the time, right. if I can say it that way, who had passed yeah. away and had a reputation for being anti-Semitic. And so as a result, uh, with him being off the scene, Pilate's ability to get closer to Herod uh, opened up to a degree, and that would have not been true in 30 and would have been true in 33. Right, and that's the very reason why I uh, leaned to 33, because, you know, so Janus, he was doing fine as long as uh, Tiberius was on the Isle of Capri. But uh-huh. When Tiberius found out what Sejanus was doing, uh, Sejanus is killed. Now, uh, Pilate's inside man in Rome is gone, and that's when the, the charge, you're no friend of Pilate, no friend of the uh, emperor, would have meant something to it. And, and there's an interesting background to that, because Pilate had done some things that were particularly offensive to the Jewish community Correct. within mm-hmm. his prefecture, and, and Tiberius had rebuked him for it. So he already was kind of on a short leash and needed to be careful about how he was handling uh, affairs there. And, of course, he eventually lost his prefecture by doing yes. another offensive thing in relationship to Samaritans after the time Jesus was crucified. So we know... He was uh, he was being how, how can you see this? He was being um, he he had an overseer who was very much overseeing what he was doing. Yeah, he was being surveilled from Syria. There you go. That's a that's a that's a good way to say it. Okay, so that's the interesting one. That's one on which we agree. Let's go to one that where we've discussed back and forth, and that is sure. so so the the Last Supper. Okay. Um, not so much the day. We agree on the day. The day of the crucifixion is a Friday. Uh, it's right. the day before a Sabbath, which means that you're going to have – it's also associated with a, with a feast, so it's a sacred day, um, which leads into a Sabbath, which is also a sacred day. So you got two sacred days in a row, which produces its own set of problems if you're a Jewish person trying to keep uh, keep tabs of, of following the law. So – so you've got that environment, but the discussion around uh, around the Last Supper involves what feast and what is the discussion? Well, the discussion is, was this actually a, um, a, a pre-Sabbath, pre-feast uh, dinner, or was it just an ordinary dinner of some sort? And then beyond that, uh, I have a rather unique interpretation of that dinner. But if if it was a genuine uh, Seder meal, a genuine Passover Seder, meal, yeah. it would then mean that uh, you're looking at uh, the Sabbath the next day, and therefore you're looking at the, uh, the uh, synoptics account of events uh, falling right into play. If it was something else, then John comes into play because he has a little different take on how these days play out and what this particular meal was. Yeah, the, and the trick here is is not only the combination that you're dealing with Passover and Sabbath, but Passover itself moves into unleavened bread immediately. There's no break. Right. So you've right. actually got a, a series. I mentioned two, but you actually have a week-long feast in which every day is regarded as a as a holy day. Um, so once you enter that window, you're there for a while, and the day the day of preparation associated with the Passover, and this is how I resolve it: the day associated with the Passover is is actually part of a sequence of several days, and you could be anywhere in that and refer to it as the day of preparation for the Passover, because the Passover holiday covers that, in in one sense, that entire week, even though it's Passover and unleavened bread. That favors, uh, if you can say it this way, the synoptic emphasis, what produces the Johannine question and then a question about whether there's a Passover meal, is that John uses the phrase, the preparation for the Passover, and that gets read in a very specific sense. Not as the Passover week, somewhere in the Passover week, but actually the beginning of the Passover itself. And when you do that, then it looks like the synoptics and John aren't quite on the same page. And, uh, and then you, you make a choice and an explanation by saying, well, then Jesus did a meal that was so close to the Passover that it had Passover connotations, even though it wasn't a Passover meal. And I think that that resolves in favor of highlighting the Johannine uh, chronology read in a particular way. 
Um, yeah, and actually, that explanation wasn't all that uh, attractive to me uh-huh. anyway, which is why I I saw this this meal, whatever it was, as a transition from Old Testament to New Testament, from uh, the Passover meal to the Last Supper, and therefore it didn't fit the category of just any old meal, just a regular dinner with his disciples. It had a specific purpose. If not the Passover meal itself, it had another specific Because the Passover, and you know, I tell people, regardless of how you take the view on this, it's a little bit like the way we handle the Christmas season. You know, we have Christmas parties in our workplaces that aren't held on Christmas Day, okay, because of the overhang of what the holiday season is. And so you could have something like this. One thing that, that, uh, I'll be honest, attracts me to the Passover view and the fact that synaptics call this a Passover is, I think there's something subtly Christological going on here, which Mm -hmm. is that Jesus has taken a specified Torah-commanded liturgy Okay, which is tied to the Exodus and the Passover, and has Correct. changed the symbolism that's involved in it. Well, he's added to the symbolism, would be a better way to say it. He's added to the symbolism because his death is kind of a second salvific event in the history of Israel and connects to that. And then that raises the question, who has the right to do that? Who has the right to take Torah-based uh, Torah-based teaching where the, all the symbolism is spelled out for you and sure. alter it and attack it. That does says something about who Jesus thinks he is. Yeah, 20-century-old tradition, he changes it overnight. Exactly <laughs> right. And he, and he doesn't – and he's got to have the authority to do that. I mean, that's yeah. part of the point. And I like to make the point about the resurrection. The resurrection, we tend to – preach it on Easter as if, well, um, you know, you walk out and you say, he is risen, and of course, what does the congregation say? He is risen indeed, yeah. right? right? And so right. we make it about the fact that there's an afterlife and there's life after death. All true. All absolutely true. But in many ways, the most important thing that Easter represents is the vindication of God for everything that Jesus is claiming about himself. Right, right. Justification. Exactly. So, um, so... So that's a that, that's one that you and I've gone back and forth on and had some fun with. But well, I, I think the point that we're making in talking about this is um, either view makes sense, if I can say it that way, um, and either view is possible. Um, it it's two different ways to deal with the uh, variety of things that the text is suggesting about the timing. We know. It's close to the Passover. The Passover is overshadowing the um, sure. symbolism of the event as a whole. It's being uh, seen throughout uh, what's happening at the end of the week, regardless of which of those views you take. Right. Yep. Okay. Um, let me go on. We're rapidly running out of time here. Um, when you have a you have a book that says "Walking with Jesus from the Upper Room to Joseph's Tomb," is this? Uh, a work through some of the upper room discourse material and that kind of thing? It's actually more geographical than theological. Uh, Basically, we start at the upper room and go through each of the steps, each of the stops, if I could say it that way, each of the stops of Jesus along the way, where they are in relation to the other, what is the meaning of this stop, and why did this one occur until you get to Joseph's tomb, which is the final stop. And as I say, I I only deal with uh, from the upper room to Joseph's tomb in the series, so I don't go either before that or after that. I see. So this is is the equivalent of, uh, or uh, like kind of, what is it, the 14... What's the Catholic thing? It's right, the uh, fort- the uh, steps of the cross. Steps of the cross. Stations. Yeah, stations of the cross. Yeah, exactly. So, um, uh, yeah, we don't have fourteen. <laughs> you, yeah, <laughs> yeah, but you. So it, you basically deal with uh, things like um, the fact that uh, Simon of Cyrene had to bear the cross for Jesus, and sure. and those kinds of things, and, and things like um, how do we know that the upper room is where it's located. Is that right? You know, and whatever archaeological evidence I can bring to bear on uh, current day archaeological evidence on what we know the location is. Uh, how do we know where Jesus 
uh, prayed in the garden. What are the options in the Garden of Gethsemane? So it has a lot of uh, archaeological, historical uh, bent to it as well. Interesting. That's, that sounds pretty fascinating. I haven't seen that volume, so that's interesting. Um, and then book six deals with what uh, Jesus' crucifixion accomplished, the purpose and meaning of Jesus' crucifixion. Now, there's a part of me that says, oh, everyone's going to know that. I mean, so, um, uh, but what do you deal with there? You know, I I tried to stay away from the traditional theological answers to that, redemption, mm-hmm. justification, so on. And I said, okay, uh, Satan has been at war with God for a long, long time. One of the things Jesus did was he ended the war, the long war against God, by defeating Satan. Uh, another thing is uh, it was at the cross that the— um, the uh, personality we have, the uh, what's the word I'm looking for, our our, uh, <laughs> our uh, ability to do things. When, when we were created, we were the crown of God's creation, mm-hmm. you know, and we had a certain um, calling. Substance. We, uh, I cannot come up with the word, hmm. but anyway, uh, we were significant. There's my word. Okay, God created us the most significant thing in his creation. And he, he did it in the way he created us. He did it in the the timing of our creation, being the last created. But in the Garden of Eden, our significance was lost when we severed our relationship with God. What Jesus did on the cross was he reignited, reattached that relationship, which was severed in the Garden of Eden. So that's one of the chapters in that book. And I've tried to I've tried to look at things that Jesus did on the cross that may not show up immediately in the Theology 101 textbooks. Okay, well, that's fascinating. I, I like to tell people that if you look at the evangelistic speeches and acts, um, there isn't a whole lot about substitution in those, in those speeches. It's Correct. all about who does the saving and, sure. and sure. our connection to him and the reestablishment of who who that relationship is with, et cetera, which I think is actually important. There's also another important thing that I think needs to be said here, and that is when we make the gospel just about the cross, the danger will be that we cut out the hope of the new life in the gospel message, and the hope of the new life is the point, at least a point, about why Jesus went to the cross. He's clearing the decks and dealing with the barrier between humanity and God by dealing with sin, but that's not the end. It isn't just, oh, my sins are forgiven and that's the end of it. No, there's, my sins are forgiven so I can have experience of the new life, so the Spirit can come in and change and transform me and make me into the person God designed me to be. I like to say we're made in God's image because we're made to image God. And, uh, and when we do that well, uh, we are able to reflect His, his character um, and and that's what we're called to do and be. And Jesus's death for sin, ending the battle with Satan, all those things are designed to take us to that place where that new life can come in, and we can experience what what uh, what God designed us to experience. Yeah, the the cross represents old and new. The old is now past. The new has come. You know, the new creation, uh, new life in Christ. This is why we walk away from the cross and we don't stay there, because it was the end of um, our responsibility to God for our own sin. But it was also the beginning of a new life that is our responsibility now to live out. Yeah, and I tell people we don't share the gospel fully if we only talk about the cross, because it's the new life that actually generates the hope. That we have, I, and I like to picture it as a baptism. And I'm going to be Baptist here, you know, immersion, not sprinkling. Get that weak stuff out of here. Um, and if it's only about the cross, it's like going in for baptism under the water and never coming up. Never coming out. Yes. <laughs> That's right. You and you expire if you do that. Okay. So the text says, "Dead to sin." That's the cross yep. part. Alive to God. That's the new life and resurrection and the provision of the Spirit part, and that whole thing makes up the gospel. That's for sure. That yeah. is for sure. Well, um, uh, 
Woodrow, I really appreciate your taking your time to walk us through this. I, 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 book seven, again, is about what? We didn't cover that. I should mention that before. Take up the cross. It's our responsibility, how we take it up, how we deny ourselves, take up the cross, and follow him. So it's a discipleship, the discipleship implications of the cross. It really is. It's more practical theology, discipleship. Uh-huh. And your hope is, to, when do you hope all these volumes are out? Uh the hope is to do three a year, um, and uh, if we do that, then it'll be, let's see, this is 23, the end of 24, beginning of 25, so okay. it'll be first quarter of 25. Great. Well, uh, this has been quite, this is obviously quite an assignment that you've undertaken, and we've only briefly overviewed it, but... Uh, um, you know, you'll be commended to work through this. I've I've looked at one of the volumes in detail, and one of the beauties of what you've done is you set out all the conversations that people are having and all the discussions that rotate around it, but you delivered it at a level where people can um, process and, and absorb. And you're probably right to have broken it up into seven separate steps as opposed to making a person have – what would be? I, I don't know. I, I would define it as probably the ultimate mega meal on the on the cross, which they would probably be way too. You know, I, I think I overate. You know, but uh, but anyway, really appreciate uh, what this represents in terms of your own effort and commitment to communicate um, the truth of Jesus's life at this particular crucial juncture to people. So thank you very much for that. This episode is brought to you by Our Daily Bread Ministries, a global media organization that makes the life-changing wisdom of the Bible understandable and accessible to all. As a part of that mission, Where You're From is a podcast for those who believe it's important to stop and listen before we speak. Join us on each episode as we ask another Christian thought leader, Where You're From, and discover how their life experiences and expertise even if we may disagree with something they say, offers us important perspectives worth thinking about. To see our list of guests, visit whereyou'refrom.org today. That's where, y-a-from.org. I'm Russell Berry, reminding you that it's not just about where you're at, but it's also about where you're from. Well, my pleasure indeed. Yeah. And so we... Uh, Thank you again for taking the time to be with us, uh, Woodrow, and uh, we wish you well with the project. Thank you. And I want to thank you for joining the table. Hope you'll join us again soon. If you are interested in other episodes of the table, you can check them out at voice.dts.edu slash table podcast, where you can get the whole menu of almost over 600 hours of material that we've produced for the table where we discuss issues of God and culture, and we hope to see you again soon. Thanks for listening to The Table Podcast. Dallas Theological Seminary. Teach truth. Love well.